walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 74. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. It's amazing how much power a map can have. Somehow that simple combination of lines and place names can inspire the wildest of fantasies or the most sprawling of daydreams, filling up hours and hours. More and more over the past couple years, I've found myself just staring at the network of routes documented, recovered, and developed by the British Pilgrimage Trust, marveling at the possibilities. <laughs> and a little bit of dreading, too. It's interesting that juxtaposition of exciting possibilities along with the awareness that there will never be enough time to explore them all. But mostly marveling. There are just so many walks out there, so many places to explore, and I've just barely scratched the surface of walking in England and the UK. The power of maps is also central to this episode. The story goes that the co-founder of the British Pilgrimage Trust, Will Parsons, was studying an old map when he discovered the outline of a forgotten pilgrimage route following the coast from Southampton to Canterbury. Dubbed the old way, not an old way, mind you, but the old way, The route is now thoroughly documented by the Trust, including an online guide and some pilgrim-friendly accommodations as part of their sanctuary network. I didn't discover the old way through a map, but rather through Gail Simmons' book, Between the Chalk and the Sea. That only further stoked my curiosity, and so Gail and I then spent the last half year trying to find a time that would work for a chat, and at long last, we connected. And our conversation is the first half of this episode. Now, Gail's experience was complicated by the timing of it, which happened to coincide with COVID. As such, I wanted to also get the experience of an even more recent pilgrim on the old way in the post-pandemic environment, and that led me to Carol Donaldson, an ecologist and travel writer who walked a portion of the route last year. What stands out to me the most about both conversations is Gail and Carol's deep love of land and landscape, something that comes through vividly in their writing and observations. I think it'll make you want to experience England on foot. It certainly makes me want to. So that's the plan for this episode. Two perspectives on the old way to Canterbury, through the South Downs, over the chalk, and along the sea. Gail Simmons is the author of Between the Chalk and the Sea, A Journey on Foot into the Past, as well as Country of Larks, A Chiltern Journey, In the Footsteps of Robert Louis Stevenson, and The Footprint of HS2. Her online home is Travelscribe.org. So Gail Simmons, thank you for speaking with me about your book, Between the Chalk and the Sea. As I understand it, the book originated with a project you were focused on involving walks with meaning. So I wonder if you could start by talking about how you conceive of Walks With Meaning and what that project was. Oh, okay. It, it kind of goes back further than that because I wrote a book published in 2019 about a walk across the Chiltern Hills, which is a range of hills north of London where I kind of grew up. 
And it was a walk following in the footsteps of the author Robert Louis Stevenson, who most people, if they remember him nowadays, think of him as a novelist, Treasure Island, all that kind of thing. But actually, he was a travel writer first, and he he started writing about his walks and his journeys very young in his life. And he made this three-day journey across the Chiltern Hills. When he was a young man, he was unhappy in love. He was in love with an older married woman. It wasn't going to work out. So he did this walk across the hills. And I decided, because it was close to where I was brought up, to do this walk myself, following his footsteps. And I did so, and I wrote this book, and other things happened that sort of made the book a little bit more relevant, which probably wouldn't resonate with US audiences, but essentially a huge, great train line called HS2, very controversial, billions of pounds being spent, some of it's now been axed, carving its way through this landscape. So I was trying to record the landscape before it disappeared forever. As a result of that, I got asked by an editor of one of the broadsheet Sunday papers, I can't remember, I think it was the Telegraph, to do a, a roundup, which means a sort of collection of walks with meaning. So walks that aren't just for the sake of it, like, oh, I think I'll go out for a walk. I've got half an hour. I just wander around a bit. A walk with a purpose, I guess. So it was as a result of doing the research for that that I came across this path called the Old Way, which is a rediscovered pilgrimage route that goes from Southampton, which is a port on the south coast of England, to Canterbury, which was one of the premier sites of pilgrimage in the Middle Ages after Jerusalem, Rome, Santiago, and then Canterbury was probably up there. So I decided I just had to walk this. And so that's how it came about. The problem was when I decided to walk it, it was March 2020. <laughs> and, then, and then kind of the rest is history. Had you any experience with something that was explicitly a pilgrimage route before? Not really. I mean, like a lot of people, I have always thought, well, I'd like to have walked the Camino de Santiago because it's the pilgrimage route in the Western world. Obviously, there are there's Hajj in Saudi Arabia. You know, there are other cultures have their own pilgrimage routes. But it's the kind of Western sort of Christian pilgrimage route. And I know people who've done that and, you know, they've done it in bits or they've done it in one go and it's been sort of life altering. But when the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, why do I want to travel? Because pilgrimage really should start from home. In the Middle Ages, pilgrimage started from when you stepped out of your door. You didn't fly somewhere and then do a pilgrimage. And I thought, well, why am I in the age of slow travel and carbon consumption and flying around the planet which isn't good for us why am I thinking of flying or going traveling somewhere to do a walk why don't I do a walk closer to home so that's really what was my rationale and then when this pilgrimage route came up the old way I just thought it just ticked all the boxes what makes Southampton stand out as a starting point for a pilgrimage so it was a major port in the middle ages you had London Bristol and Southampton were the three major ports it was the third biggest port in the middle ages because it was well-placed geographically for France and for the sort of western coast of France. So it was the major port for importing stuff like wines from Burgundy or, say, silks from Italy. So it was a major port anyhow, and people, pilgrims, would travel on these merchant ships. It's the same if you went to go to Santiago, for example. You probably wouldn't walk from your home. You, you might take the boat as far as you could and then, then walk it. And so pilgrims would come on this boat to Southampton. So that's why it started there. And then they would walk, European pilgrims would walk to Canterbury or by horse or whatever from Southampton. So it's Southampton because it's a major port. And there's evidence that people did travel from Southampton. 
There was excavations in a lane, a street called Cuckoo Lane, which still exists in Southampton. The houses don't, but the name of the lane does. And in the 1960s, they excavated this street and found in the basement of one of the houses, which is a 13th century merchant house, they found these ampules, these little sort of lead containers from Canterbury, which pilgrims would go to Canterbury and they'd buy these little lead containers filled with you know, holy blood, and then they'd take them home. So we had evidence that people travelled that way. Hmm. And then they would stop at pilgrim churches on the way or pilgrim sites or shrines that would mean something to them and they'd sort of make little prayers and offerings. So we've got, you know, all the way along the route, you've got little pilgrim churches where pilgrims have made graffiti in the stone or little crosses and things or pilgrims signs. So we have kind of circumstantial evidence that people made that route. And then they ended up at Canterbury, which, as I say, was a major site of pilgrimage in the Middle Ages until it was squashed by Henry VIII. As you start your journey in the book, you describe the despondency of travel that parallels the excitement. And that stood out to me because so often in the accounts, the focus is very much on the excitement, the enthusiasm as one sets forth. But the despondency is there as well. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I was sort of traveling on my own. And it's always a bit weird when you start a journey on your own because you're kind of, you know, I write about in my book how you you have a sort of protective shell around you and you need to kind of shed that before you walk out into the world. You have to sort of, there's a climatization that takes place when you move from your ordinary life and ordinary work and family life to being out on the road, it takes a few days to kind of feel okay about it. And I was thinking, you know, in the middle ages, people would have felt just the same. They would have set out from their villages. They probably wouldn't have traveled further than just 20, 30 miles, maybe in their lives. When they set out, they will have had to make a will in case they never came back because it was a dangerous thing. They would have had to sort out their financial affairs. They would have had to, well, just essentially prepare themselves for the fact they may not come back. So this feeling I had of sort of, oh, God, you know, I'm starting this one. I just stay at home. Wouldn't it be easy just to sort of stay at home instead of putting myself through this? People would have had that through the ages. So it was quite sobering to think that I was just going through what other people have gone through for hundreds of years when leaving home. But yeah, travel is always a mixed bag. You're always putting yourself in a vulnerable position when you're traveling. You're you're away from the sort of safety net of your home and your environs. A lot of us who go on pilgrimage, we are leaving our home country and we're going to a different country, a different language, very different context. You were walking in England and you still describe yourself as forcing yourself to become the outsider. Yes. So how is it being an outsider while still in your home country? Because I've travelled a lot in quite sort of difficult places, let's say, like places like Syria and Jordan, not difficult as they are now. And I mean, I don't mean sort of war zones, but because they weren't at the time, but just difficult because the culture is very different. Language is different. In a way, it's easy to be the outsider there because you are the outsider. But when you're on your own country, you have to still think of yourself as an outsider. Otherwise, you don't notice what is particular about the landscape or about the people. You have to sort of set yourself apart as an observer, as opposed to being within the culture. And I think that is quite a discipline to do because you are part of the culture in a certain way, although writers are always slightly outside because that's what makes them writers. But you have to deliberately step outside your expectations and just try to see your own culture as you would if you were traveling somewhere else. So it was a kind of deliberate practice I went through to sort of think, well, if I was traveling here for the first time, how would this seem to me? So some of the things I would take for granted I try to see as an outsider might. So that's kind of what I meant. 
Can you give me an example of something that you saw in a different light about your home country? Well, actually, it was my brother. My brother lives in California and he's lived there for about 20 years and he comes back home. And I was walking with him a couple of years ago and we were just doing a walk around near where my parents are. And he said there was just like a, it was a wooden bench sitting by the path. And you see those everywhere in England. People put benches down. They, they're usually in memory of somebody who's died a little plaque on them saying this is for so-and-so who love walking here whatever and they're just part of what you notice and what well you don't even notice it because they're part of the landscape so my brother said what I like about walking in England is all these benches to sit down and I thought to myself actually that's really strange you don't get it anywhere else well so when I went walking I thought about this and you come across these benches and they've sort of set they've got plaques on them dedicated to someone who might have died before their time let's say Often they'd have little offerings on, little flowers or little shells or little things tied to them, little sayings. And so that was strange. I mean, it's not <laughs> strange because I'm used to it. But actually, when I think of it from someone else's point of view, it's quite weird to walk along a landscape and then to find this wooden bench just there, someone's put there. So it was that kind of thing. It was trying to sort of see it from an outsider's point of view. So that was one particular example of that. Yeah. And you're never happier to find a bench than you are when you're on a long distance walk exactly. so. <laughs> just, just when you want to sit down there's the bench yeah overlooking a lot yeah but it makes you think about who's passed there before and you realize so many people have walked this way and i think that's what's nice about walking in this country in europe in general is you're walking on old roads that people have walked on for hundreds of years and that feels really good you feel you're just sort of part of a continuum of history which i think is a nice feeling what stood out to me reading your book in comparison to other pilgrimage books is a lot of times when I'm trying to structure a conversation about one of these books, I'll think about prominent places. I'll think about major historical sites. Mm. Maybe I'll think about interpersonal interactions. But what stood out to me in your book is landscape. Yeah. And I wonder if we could just do some word association. I want to throw out mm -hmm. aspects of the landscape that stood out to me in your writing and hear you talk about them and describe them and what stood out to you. So the first one is chalk. <laughs> chalk. Yeah, I talk a lot about it in my book. That's why the title is what it is. I grew up on a chalk landscape. I grew up in the hills north of London for part of my childhood anyway. So it's the landscape of my childhood. It's a landscape that resonates most with me. It's a very sort of malleable rock. It's the softest rock that forms a sort of subterranean of landscape, I guess, in this, in, certainly in, in Britain. It's quite rare in the world, and it's a rock that people have used as an artist canvas for centuries. People have built burial mounds on it, people have etched carvings into the hillside, a famous a white horse of Uffington being one of them, the long man of Wilmington, which is on the cover of my book. Great chalk figure that people still don't know who carved it and why and what it means. And it's a very enigmatic sort of rock. Whereas um, where I live in North Yorkshire at present, it's a rock called millstone. It's a sandstone. It's called millstone grit. It's really hard. So hard they used to make millstones out of it to grind wheat kernels. Chalk is a soft and forgiving and a kind of quite dynamic sort of rock. It's almost like the sea may rock. So I've always been attracted to that kind of sea and land kind of merging in, in chalk, which is made up of billions. I mean, chalk is made up of billions and billions and billions of microscopic sea creatures that used to be under the tropical sea because where we are now used to be in the tropics. It just fascinates me. So that's why. Tell me about bluebells. Oh, bluebells. Bluebells, they're particular to a certain climate, which is sort of temperate maritime climate, which you get where we are. I think we have one of the largest the habitats of bluebells in the world. 
and they just emerge in, in April, May, and this sort of cloud of blue in the woodlands, just before the trees are coming into leaf, but before they've fully got the leaf canopy, which blocks out the sun, you get the bluebells coming up. And the smell of them is so kind of fresh and they look like a kind of mist. They sort of hover above the ground in this sort of bluey purple haze. They're just extraordinary. I mean, you can't pick them. If you pick them, they just die. You shouldn't try and pick them. You just let them be. These words were unfamiliar to me. I've always heard these described in different ways, but talk about twittens and holloways. Oh, holloways. Holloways are fascinating because they are worn down by people and animals over centuries. So people would walk up, say, from the valleys of villages and the valleys up to the hills where they graze their animals. They almost always take people off a hill or up a hill. And they're worn down by footfall over hundreds of years. So much so that you're walking almost in a tunnel and in a really deep hollow way. And they say that it deepens by about a meter every 300 years. So I'd be walking down a particular deep hollow way where the roots of the trees on the sides were above my head. If you were in the field opposite, you wouldn't even notice they were there. You'd just see a line of trees. So again, it's the idea of walking where people have walked for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they're a very special thing. I'm sure they exist in other countries, but when you find one, it's just a lovely, it's a, it's a magical thing. Twitten, that's just a local name for, we don't have it, I think it's just particular to that area that I was walking through in Hampshire and that sort of southeast England. It just means a sort of little lane that takes you from one place to another and they usually wiggle around. Yeah. They're called all sorts of things. Each region has its own name for these little sort of alleyways or snickleway. That's the Yorkshire word is a snickleway, the same thing. English words are so much better than American words. <laughs> well, no, I mean, just, <laughs> it's just they're very local. What's nice about them is they're very, they're very local to the landscape. And the, and thinking about the English or British landscape is that over a small area, it changes so much because the geology is so varied. So you travel 50 miles, 15 miles, and, and it looks different usually. So it's a very, even though it's a small land, it's a very varied land. And it's very varied in terms of the dialect and the names for things as well. Could you talk about rings, the hill forts that you encountered along the way? Oh, those hill forts. Yeah, they're thousands of years old. Again, we're not quite sure why they were built. They were built as usually as either as defensive castles. So they were, if you don't know what they are, they're usually on tops of hills. They're dug out. So you, you dig out a huge ditch. And then with the soil or the stone, you then build up ramparts. And they'd be kind of like defensive forts where people would gather in times of danger. But they'd also be, they think, also be used for sort of ceremonial purposes, sacred purposes. Again, nobody really knows, which is why they're so fascinating. And they, as I say, they go back, you know, thousands and thousands of years, four or five thousand years. So those are the hill forts. And then you've got the, the barrows, the long barrows and round barrows. And barrows were burial mounds where they dig and bury people in these chambers and then put sort of chalk on top so that you, they kind of glow in the on the landscape. So they were, again, they were sort of ceremonial, a bit like the pyramids. Mm. And at Silbury Hill, I mean, I don't talk about it in my book, but it's an amazing man-made, largest man-made mound in Europe. Again, about sort of 4,000 years old, near Avebury, quite near Stonehenge. I mean, it is the, the British pyramids. And, you know, I just love that. Again, it's, it's a sense of all the people that have been there before. You can feel it. You can literally feel it. You can sense it. And, and I love that. Well, the landscape stands out for sure in the way that you document your journey person who runs through the narrative is St. Thomas Beckett. Yeah. So what new insights did you draw about Beckett on this journey as you walked from Southampton to Canterbury? Well, he was always quite an elusive figure because we kind of know this 
the outline, the skeleton of his life, how he became close to the king, Henry II. He rose up from being quite a sort of humble, not humble, he was he was of the merchant class, but he wasn't aristocratic class. He rose up through the ranks and became chancellor of the exchequer, chancellor for Henry II. And then Henry II thought, well, now, because the church is always sort of against me and is always jostling against my power, I'll make him Archbishop of Canterbury and then I'll have the church on my side. So he did that. And Thomas Beckett immediately said, well, actually, no, I'm not going to sort of kowtow to you. Handed back his chancellor's chains and decided that the church would be independent. And, and that really pissed him off, Henry <laughs> II, which is why eventually it ended up with him being murdered. So that's the kind of basics of the story. And we don't have and there is documentary evidence, but the person that really mattered to me was the walking companion I had, Alice of Southwick, because she came with me on the journey. She's a semi-fictional character. I talked earlier about the house in Southampton and where they'd excavated these tokens from Canterbury that shown that people from the house had been there. So I, I imagined walking with the lady of the house, and so I tried to sort of see it through her eyes. But certainly as you got towards Canterbury, even nowadays, even 500 years after pilgrimage was banned by Henry VIII, you sense the Thomas Beckett thing. More and more churches are dedicated to him. More and more people sort of recognise that you're on a pilgrimage. They kind of know, almost when they don't know. It's almost in their sort of folk memory somehow that they know what you're doing. So that was quite amazing. I wanted to ask you about that choice as well, to create this fictional figure, the lady of the house, to engage with as you move through this narrative. Why did you make that choice and what did you learn from her? Why did I make that choice? Because partly because we talked about being despondent and lonely. I thought if I couldn't travel with anyone, I'd travel with this fictional person. And she was fictional in that, I don't know if she was called Alice. However, you know, she will have existed because her husband, Richard of Southwick, definitely existed and he would have had a wife and she might have been Alice. I chose Alice because it was quite a popular name in the Middle Ages. And it just was nice to have someone with me. And so, so when I, you know, I kind of imagined what she would eat, what she would where, where she would stay, what she would make of, for example, some of these hill forts that we just discussed. Would she think of them as pagan sites and, and sort of steer away from them? Or would she be fascinated enough to climb up? So for me, having that, trying to sort of see it from her point of view, trying to put my mind back 500 years was really interesting. It, it really helped me write the book, I guess. And it also kept me from being quite so lonely. And also meant I had someone to talk to, you know, so when I was, people have said about my book, you know, I feel I'm with you. I feel like you're talking to me. Well, I was kind of talking to myself, but I was talking to her as well. So it was almost like I had that dialogue going. It is the challenge of being on a less traveled walking route. You yeah. don't have the luxury of dialogue with other walkers much of the time. I had to do it between the lockdowns and there were many fewer people out than normally, mm -hmm. except on places like the South Downs, which is a long distance walking path. But generally, a few, fewer people out because of the lockdowns and things. And so I had to sort of fit in my walks between the lockdowns that we had. So I was also trying to do a long walk that was interrupted by COVID. So I was trying to walk across the US at the time and okay. I still need to finish that walk. So I I know what it's like to have yeah. that experience. That is a big walk. That's a huge walk. <laughs> it's a big walk. I'm wondering, as you look back on that, it's easy to think about what was lost, what was disrupted by COVID mm -hmm. striking during this. What was gained for you as you navigated completing this walk around the pandemic? What was gained was this sense that two things. One is an understanding of what people went through in the Middle Ages when, when they had the Black Death. 
when illnesses would seriously disrupt people's lives. And we, in our arrogance, thought that nothing could disrupt our lives, but you know how wrong we were. Another plague from the East, the Great the Black Death, which killed up to half of the population of Europe came along the Silk Road from China. They say that COVID came from China, spread from the East, you know, so parallels there. But what I found was because of COVID, it made it hard because of far fewer places I could stay because places just weren't open. I wanted to stay in nunneries and convents with nuns and stuff, but they were sheltering their elderly nuns and didn't want people, fair enough. But people were, were in a way more welcoming because COVID at that time, I don't know if it was the same in the US, but there was a kind of sense that you needed to be kind to everybody, that we're all mm. in it together. So people would actually put themselves out to help you more, you know, offer you lifts or just help you because they realised that things were harder than they would have been. So in a way, it brought out the best in people. Was your original plan to walk in different seasons or was that a consequence of COVID as well? Well, I originally thought it would be nice to walk it in one go. And I think when I set out, I thought I'd walk it in one go. And then when COVID happened and I had to stop, I actually rethought it and thought, okay, it would be really nice to walk it in four seasons. Because I I didn't know at that point when the lockdowns would be, but I thought if I could somehow walk it, because yes, it would be nice to do it all in spring because it was a beautiful spring and spring is the time when people went up on pilgrimage. That's what Chaucer said anyway. But when you're writing about the landscape, it's much more interesting to write about it at different times of year winter, spring, autumn, summer, because it changes so much. So actually, it was partly COVID, but it was partly that, I mean, COVID made me make that decision. But I think even if COVID hadn't have happened, I think that was the best outcome. What stood out to you as special about each of those four seasons? Oh, gosh. Well, spring, you've obviously got, you've got the bluebells of the seasons. were interesting because they were the seasons that the Celtic calendar used. So they were the cusp season. So they weren't the height of spring. So they weren't, I didn't walk in the spring solstice or the autumn solstice or, you know, I, I walked at what the, the Celts call, what we call the quarter season. So where winter changed to spring or spring changed to summer or summer changed to autumn, autumn changed to winter. And I quite like those sort of cuspy seasons because things are changing all the time. But just seeing the colours change and just seeing the bright, fresh greens of spring. And then you've got the sort of yellows and goldens of late summer and then you know, you've got the golden wheat and the sort of aridness of the land. And then at late October, early November, obviously got the autumn or fall colours. And then I did it sort of at the last season I did was late winter, early spring. So it was the sort of the Feast of St. Bridget or Candlemas, as we call it in the Christian church. Because, of course, you know, all the Christian festivals are superimposed on the pagan ones deliberately so that people would convert, you know. Of course. Yeah, so just seeing the, the the cusp seasons was quite nice for me. People listening to this will be intrigued and some might think, yes, this sounds really interesting and nice. Can you speak to some of the practical considerations for walking along this route? People will often wonder about, is the waymarking reliable? Can I find my way? Is there consistent accommodation? Do I have to walk really far to get from place to place? What's it like just on a practical perspective, navigating those things? The thing about England or Britain is that you you don't have to walk very far to get from place to place because it's a very sort of densely populated country historically as well. You know, you go three or four miles, five miles, and there's another village. doesn't mean there's somewhere to stay always, but there's always little, it's like a network, a kind of web of web of paths. And all the paths that you walk on are old, old paths that have been there for hundreds of years because people use these old paths to get between villages, to get to towns, to go to markets, to get to their fields, to work. So they're all pre-existing paths. 
which are generally quite well met, way marked, but I mean, nothing to beat a good map. I didn't use digital maps because I didn't want to stare at a phone the whole time. So I just printed out the ordnance survey maps, which are the sort of mapping system we have here, which are really detailed maps showing every field and every wood, which are a joy to look at anyhow. But it was hard for me because of COVID. So I had to be a bit more planned than I would necessarily have done. I had to plan my accommodation. Otherwise I'd have turned up somewhere and then it would have been closed. Good pair of boots, good rain wear, good sun wear. Don't rush it. Just don't rush it. You know, I didn't really walk that many miles a day, but actually I stopped a lot and I looked at things and I imbibed the landscape. And I think if you try to sort of rush it, you, you don't do that. You don't notice things. At one point, you write about how England turned on pilgrimage, turned on many of its religious institutions. Thomas Beckett comes up in that. As you walked on pilgrimage in England today, did you get a sense of what pilgrimage and, and religion can mean to present day England? Pilgrimage has undergone a huge revival in, I'm not sure it's probably as a result of the Camino de Santiago, which has undergone a huge revival in the last few decades. And the same thing has happened here, but I think it has less religious connotations. So the British Pilgrimage Trust, who organization that established just to reconnect people with the tradition of pilgrimage, they say, bring your own beliefs. You don't have to be religious. And for me, I can't speak for other people. For me, there was holiness in the land as well as in the churches. So you go to these churches, often the little tiny remote ones would be more powerful than the big cathedrals. You go to these tiny churches and you sort of feel again that these places mattered to people. Even nowadays, you go into these churches and you'll see old ladies polishing the wood or putting the flowers out or doing something like that. And you think, well, that's their sort of pilgrimage, that they still love these buildings. And I think, you know, that that is very alive still, you know, whether it's purely religious. And then just going through woodlands or certain landscapes, you'd feel a very sort of great sense of the power of nature, which again is spiritual, although may not be classically religious. This last question that I have for you is about the larger work of travel writing. Mm -hmm. This book's categorized as a memoir. Is it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> At least uh, when, when I picked it up. Your personal story is almost peripheral to the trail in the way that you write this. Yeah. And something that jumps out at me, having read a lot of pilgrimage books, is that a lot of pilgrimage writing ends up being as much or more about the internal journey. Yes, yeah. And this one is is overwhelmingly about the external one. Yeah. And so I'm curious about how you approach this work as a travel writer. How do you calibrate how much to make the book about your life, your subjective experience on the trail, and the places you're journeying through as you pull all of that together? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm aware that a lot of books on pilgrimage are about the internal journey, and, and usually they're written as a result of some kind of trauma or loss or grief, and people decide to, to do a long walk and to sort of work it through. Or, I mean, I'm thinking of, it wouldn't just have to be pilgrimage, I'm thinking of Cheryl Strade's book Wild, where she walks because she's had problems with drugs and her mum's died, and there's, there's a processing of trauma. And I kind of didn't really want to make it about me. I wanted to make it about the path and about the, the external things. However, you know, you want your readership to kind of get a sense of the sort of person you are so that you're not complete blank canvas. You are a person that these people are traveling with, the readers are traveling with. So that's really, it was a decision to make it about what was out there rather than what was inside me. Because I think that's a different book. You know, if I'm going to write something 
about me, I could do it, but it'd be a different book. There'd be less room to write about the bluebells and the hill forts and all that sort of thing. It occurred to me while reading it that depending on what route I'm reading about, the degree to which I want more personal story shifts. So if I'm reading about the Camino de Santiago, the main route, the Camino Frances for the 47th time, it takes more of a distinct personal story, yeah. that larger yeah. narrative to make it stand out. Exactly. But in this case, I knew nothing about the walk from Southampton to Canterbury. And I was so grateful to you for focusing so much of your attention and time on describing the land. Thank you. Well, certainly, if you try to pitch a book to a publisher about the Camino, they will almost certainly say no, because it's been done. It's been done and been done. And you know, people always want to write about the Camino and their personal experiences. But actually, if you want to get it published by a major publisher, they, they'll barely look at it, because how do you find a new way of saying it? So actually, the way to do it is to find something that's less known and make it special rather than find something's well known because it's much much harder to write something different about something that people have done and written about over decades well thank you gail thanks for writing this book which is a oh. great read and for speaking with me oh well, thank you so much for inviting me Carol Donaldson is an ecologist, travel writer, and filmmaker, with articles published regularly in The Guardian. She can be found at caroldonaldsonwriter.co.uk. Thank you again, Carol, for speaking with me about The Old Way. I enjoyed reading your article in The Guardian about your experience on the walk. It made me want to talk to you about it. The other thing that it made me think of as I read through the first paragraph in the article was how, for those of us who are coming to the idea of pilgrimage and walking in England from a different context. And for a lot of us, we sort of start in Spain and get experience on the Camino and then mm -hmm. our horizons expand. There's a lot of new terminology to wrap our minds around. So in that first paragraph, you mentioned the British Pilgrimage Trust, the Sanctuary Network, and the Old Way. Can you just start off by distinguishing what is the British Pilgrimage Trust? What is the Sanctuary Network? How do these fit together? I'm not from the British Pilgrimage Trust, so I'm not sure, sure. I'll give you the best answer in the world. But it's a, it's an amazing organisation that I only found a few years ago. They've got a fantastic website. And I think that their, their overarching aim is to encourage more people to do pilgrimage and to make pilgrimage really accessible. And they say right from the opener that it is to do with practices that are meaningful for you. So that's not necessarily organised religious practice, although, you know, a lot of the places that they recommend people go into are obviously churches and religious sites. But they also have pilgrimages which are about visiting holy wells and holy springs, so a much more ancient religion, which Britain is fantastic out we've got a lot of places where you can really feel that resonance and go to it. even if there's a church there now you can just feel that that church has been put on a more ancient religion because it will have views across the valley or it will be in a higher place or it will have an ancient view there so it's about making pilgrimage accessible and on their website they've got pilgrimages all over the country and some of them are long distance routes 
and then others most of those routes can be broken down into small sections which is obviously what i did for my article some of them are going to be urban routes some of them are going to just be day walks across somewhere like canterbury so it really is opening it up and making it a less scary thing that only certain people can do I just had a look before doing this. I thought I'd better get some background. So (laughs) I had a look and they've got a section about pilgrimage for people with disabilities and making it accessible in that way and making it quite inclusive. So part of that is the Sanctuary Network, which has only been set up in the last couple of years. And that offers low cost accommodation for people on a pilgrimage. It's pretty basic accommodation. I mean, I did that walk last year, so things have probably not changed very much. It was quite basic accommodation, but it's fantastic because accommodation in Britain is very expensive. We are an expensive country. There are obviously lots of beautiful, amazing places that you can stay if you've got the money. So that automatically cuts out a lot of people, whereas the Sanctuary Network allows you to stay in fabulous places and and places that are deeply meaningful for the pilgrimage that you're taking so I stayed in one beautiful little village church and then I stayed in a very simple chapel in a place called Alfriston it's a beautiful town in Sussex and you just give a donation to stay there and that donation sometimes they suggest an amount or sometimes you could just leave a fiver in the collection box I think So, yeah, it just makes it much more open for everybody. Fantastic. And there was a third part to your question, wasn't there? Well, no, those are the two main ones. And then the old way is the specific route that you were on, that you were walking from the larger British Pilgrimage Network and Sanctuary Network. Yeah, so the old way was a route that's kind of been rediscovered. So the British Pilgrimage Trust was set up by two people, Guy Hayward, who I met, on another pilgrimage and got talking to, which is how the whole article came about, and a guy called Will Parsons, who's recently done a series of videos walking the old way himself. He did it last winter, and there's a series of videos on YouTube where he walks it and he sings in all these beautiful places. I don't know if you've have you seen this yeah, at all? Yeah, it's amazing. Have you? He's got a lovely voice. And, oh, and I think that probably was quite a meaningful experience for him at possibly a time in his life that he needed it but it's yeah they're just charming things to see so Will Parsons rediscovered this route on an old map yeah and it's a route that goes from Southampton on the south coast to Canterbury in Kent and so I did a very small section of that but a beautiful section of it how did you make that decision you as you mentioned the British Pilgrimage Trust the network of routes that have been reassembled there is huge and that's just the pilgrimage options and there's all kinds of other walking possibilities in England what drew you to the old way for three days of walking well two things I mean one I'd met Guy Haywood he'd been talking about this sanctuary network and you know I said I do travel writing for a newspaper I was on a pilgrimage at the time so clearly had a vested interest in it it was a much more organized religious pilgrimage between two places so we got talking and he suggested it but the other thing was I took a very good friend of mine Mark Luce 
who just loves that landscape and he is someone who's got a huge wealth of knowledge on wildlife on history on art he's a he's a great walking companion it's like having your own little audio guide he's very fast walker i would say that he's speedy walker which could be a bit hard work but he is so knowledgeable and he loves that landscape and so he loves the south downs he loves all these flint churches he knew so much about it that I knew that to do it with him felt right and would bring the whole place alive for me as well. I knew the area a bit that we walked through, but I hadn't done any walking in the South Downs before, I don't think. And yeah, it just gives it a whole another level. So I was very, very lucky. I had a very good companion. It's funny that you say that because having read your article, I think of you as a ideal companion for this conversation in the sense that I am often embarrassed by my nature illiteracy. I see trees and I, I can think like, that's a really pretty tree. I see birds and I think that's a really pretty bird, but my ability to name them is probably like first or second grade level. It's quite embarrassing. But when I read your description, it is vivid and I can see the landscape almost as though I'm there. And so I'm wondering if you could just describe for people listening what you saw when you were walking as you took in the natural world of the South Downs. I should probably start by saying I'm an ecologist by profession, so being able to name everything goes with the territory. And it can be a blessing and a curse, to be honest, because mm. yes, you know the name of everything, but maybe you're looking at the specifics and sometimes you can know too much and not take it in on a more emotional level, I think. But yeah, Mark and I set off from a town called Lewes. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It could be Lewis. In the US, in Delaware, we have a town called Lewis that's spelled the same way. So I don't know if... Yeah, well, see, I'm from Essex and we say things in strange ways. So that, <laughs> I'm going to let myself off there. Anyway, we took off from this town, Lewes, Lewis. And you go straight uphill. It's got it's typical British town, a little farmer's market. You go up through some cobbled steep streets and then you come out on the downs. And so this landscape is sort of, it's not big drama landscape, the South Downs. It's not big mountainous landscapes, as I'm sure you've got in the States. I know you've got in the States. It's a more subtle beauty, but it opens up into these gentle rolling hills and suddenly, you know, you step out of any urban environment and you're in the natural world and you just, I don't know, like you feel all of those stresses and everything immediately falling away. And these hills kind of go up and down. They're quite steep. You go down to this place called Bible Bottom, which is this really silent place. I mean, it's got a, Britain is good for great names, I have to say. <laughs> so Bible Bottom, I believe... <laughs> was called Bible Bottom because preachers used to go and read the Bible there to their parishioners because it's so quiet and the acoustics are so good. And I love that about these landscapes, that those layers of human history, you know, you can just feel all of that. So you can imagine you descend to this Bible Bottom, it's this really quiet place and the landscape sort of folds away above you. 
And you can just imagine all these parishioners in, in the clothes they would have been wearing in those days, sort of lined up on the hills with the preacher at the bottom. Yeah, it was a really special place. Yeah, it's a gentle series of sort of rises and falls between small villages that have all got their own personal character and these tiny little churches, which I just love, you know. Some of them are churches that are still at the heart of a community and are obviously visited and worshipped in regularly. And others that have just lost on a tiny lane or lost, you know, off of the main road and tucked away. We went to a place, it was in a village called Beddingham. I think it was called St Andrew's Church in Beddingham. And it was so quiet. It was really hot when we were doing the walk. And so, you know, you're up and down these hills. You've got your pack on your back. You know what this is like. You know, you've done far bigger walks than I have. And then suddenly you go to this place where it's silent and it's cool. And you just can feel whatever religion you wish to subscribe to. You can just feel that resonance there. And, you know, and you just feel these these people that have worshipped in these places for centuries and yeah that's really special i feel i'm rambling a bit is that no it's great it was a question that calls for rambling right describe what you <laughs> saw over three days i set you up for that so i'm enjoying the ramble yeah yeah i mean the thing with the we did this walk at a beautiful time of year when the downs are just covered in flowers and there's a plant called ladies bed straw which was used as ladies bed straw literally it's a very aromatic plant, so you crush it and you can smell this sweet smell coming up. Got little tufty yellow flowers, and there's orchids on the downs at that time of year, and lots of butterflies, marble white butterflies. So it was a really beautiful time of year to be walking the downs, which obviously all adds to it, really. What time of year was it? June. It was June. So not too hot like many places we get increasingly hot summers it was quite hot when we were doing it so and like i say my friend mark is a very fast walker so we did make a cracking pace <laughs> luckily we started quite early in the morning you know which is lovely as well because i think you surprise the wildlife early in the morning and that's you know it's the wildlife's hour where you feel you're intruding you know, mm -hmm. people shouldn't be around at that time of day. And wildlife looks shocked and put out that you, how dare you, your alarm clock shouldn't have gone off yet. Yeah, I remember on, on the last day, we stayed in Alfriston and we got up really early. And I have to say partly because we didn't sleep massively well in these places. I mean, that does come with the territory. But we'd got up at like half past five in the morning. And because it had been hot, we decided, oh, it's past five, we're up. What are we going to do? Let's start walking. We left the town and started winding our way along this Crookmere River, it's called. And because that landscape is chalk and so quite soft landscape, the river's just sort of wound its way in these kind of really sinuous curves. So you're kind of like you're going round one way and then you're probably just coming back on yourself. But it's a very peaceful landscape, reed-fringed river, uh, and obviously nobody around, the cattle looking quite shocked as you wander across the fields. And we kept surprising herons and they 
herring's quite a big bird and not that easily scared by people so it would look like they would look like aghast and really put out how dare you how dare you interfere <laughs> with my morning fishing by wandering down you're not meant to be up at this time you know so the herons would sort of take off into the air yeah that was a lovely end we ended at the sea at a place called Cookmere Haven on the beach which is always a lovely place I think to end a pilgrimage you know mm -hmm. from the hills to the sea is the perfect pilgrimage yeah with the natural world you know there was no big religious place at the end of that journey but there's the sea and it's the sea at that part of the British coastline has got chalk cliffs not like the white cliffs of Dover which are you know I'd imagine are world famous but these are much more gentle chalk cliffs called the seven sisters and they just kind of fold along that landscape and so you walk out onto this big beach the sea's there the herons are looking aggravated with you and then you're just kind of in this sort of bowl in the landscape and I think if you had to to sum up what the South Downs is about, for me, it felt like it is this feeling of being in a an enclosed bowl in the landscape with these these hills rising up either side of you and and all this history that you've got Neolithic kings buried on the hilltops and Iron Age hill forts and you know. So yeah, it's a gentle landscape, but there's a lot going on there. Yeah. I love everything I hear about it. The only long, long-ish walk I've done in England is the North Downs way. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that's quite close to me. I mean, I'd done that in bits throughout lockdown with different people, you know, when we were allowed to walk further than six metres from your front door or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think as soon as you could walk, I mean, that, I'm sure it was the same where you are, that the whole of Britain <laughs> went walking. <laughs> and so everybody was suddenly walking and and you needed the goal, I think, a purpose during that time. And yeah, so I did uh, lots of the North Downs. Well, how, how did you find it? I know this is meant to be you asking me, but... It was crammed into a spring break, so I found it wet and squishy. Oh. <laughs> but I... I enjoyed it otherwise. As you say, the the challenge walking in England, and this was, I don't know, more than 10 years ago now, the challenge was the budgetary one that I stayed mm -hmm. in some lovely B&Bs. I vividly remember a gigantic feather bed that I slept in that was very comfortable and very expensive, but I would like to go back. I, I'm definitely drawn increasingly to the idea of walking in England because of that network of routes that sounds so exciting. I wonder if you could talk for people about maybe some of the more mundane aspects of the walk, because I think when people think about Spain, they have certain expectations. They think I can walk for a couple of hours and then there's going to be a cafe where I can get a coffee and there's going to be arrows that are leading the way. So I don't have to think too much about the route. There's going to be some other pilgrims walking that I'm going to run into What's the, the rhythm of the day like in terms of, of services and waymarks and just that feel of the walk? So I'd say that it's a really good route for services. There are still pubs in most villages serving good food, which generally is not going to be massively expensive. And there are 
cafes, probably harder to find cafes. You'd have to be in bigger places. So Alfreston is a really lovely village, which has got really good range of services, you know, really good mm-hmm. shops and, you know, all, everything you'd expect. Oh, and we went to Charleston, which is the home of the Bloomsbury Group. So that had a really lovely cafe in the grounds there. You didn't have to pay to go in the house. You could walk around the garden, enjoy the cafe. That So it was a really, for services, I think that was a really good, easy route. And I think a lot of the southeast of England actually would be like that. It's not the wilds. It's the Thames, I guess. <laughs> when it comes to people, we did, because I, I think pilgrimage is growing in this country the weird thing well not weird but the the thing is that you can still walk all day in quite populous areas and not see anybody but that route in particular it does see a fair few tourists we did come across other pilgrims the first church that we stayed in in Furl had a man who was sleeping at a shepherd's hut there you're always going to encounter people, obviously, pubs are pubs, you know, people yep. will talk to you in the pub, especially if you came with a non-English accent, you know, <laughs> you're going to still attract attention in places, people are going to want to know who you are, where you're from. So I remember going into one of the little churches that had a pilgrim bell in it, just bell that you ring and this is obviously something that's practiced in lots of religions, you know. And there, there were just two people that were just sitting in that church, kind of praying in silence. And so, you know, it was lovely to kind of come across people who were very obviously doing a pilgrimage as well. But you're more likely to encounter, I don't know, farmers, you know, or tourists in places like Charleston, you know, that's a, a big tourist house. Waymarking, well, I'm sorry to say, I'm quite lazy. If I go walking with my friend Mark, He's just got a map in his head. <laughs> I don't remember him get. I think we might have gone wrong once, but mm-hmm. I've walked miles with him across all sorts of places, and I just get very lazy. So I can't. There will always be waymarks. I mean, Britain is always pretty good for having waymarks. I don't think the old way is organised enough that there's a big sign saying the old way. There certainly isn't that. There might be signs saying the South Downs Way. One of the things that the British Pilgrimage Trust do, though, is they have broken that walk down into day sections. And they are fantastic guides, really great guides. They give you lots of historical information. They tell you sort of places that you're going to miss. The walk that we did, we started at a place called Pinwell. Now, you would never find that if you didn't know, if some, if their guides hadn't told me Pinwell is this holy spring that you go to and that's a great place to start your walk. You're never going to find that. But they give you the maps that are really good. And I think you can get all of this from the website. And they lay it all out. They tell you, I don't know, quite tell you turn left and turn right, but they really do bring that walk alive and give you maps and give you sections that are easily walkable, sections of seven, eight miles. I mean, that's an easy stroll, really, yeah. isn't it? You know, these aren't long 20 mile a day sections. And the accommodation is, I think, going to be at the end of each of those sections. So it's a very easily achievable walk for someone with a reasonable level of fitness. It's a very benign landscape. It's not going to be scary. You're not, unless something incredibly badly goes wrong, you're not going to be left out on a hill 
shivering and not knowing how to get out of there someone will turn up and say oh come and have a pint down the pub with me yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm impressed or struck by how if you're living in london and you're thinking about doing the Camino and going off for five weeks and walking the 500 miles, 800 kilometers, how easy it would be to do just what you did as a, as a warm up. It takes an hour to get from London to, to lose to Lewis and you can take that three day walk and you can sleep in the sanctuary network accommodations that are set up for pilgrims. You can get that feel of going for, you know, back to back to back days and get settled into that routine as a pilgrim. It seems like a pretty wonderful thing to have that so close to home. And they are all over the country as well. I mean, yeah. I caught the train from my house, you know, at the end of the pilgrimage. We got a bus back to Eastbourne and caught the train back home. It is quite accessible. There are obviously pilgrim routes in Britain that are more challenging but there are also an awful lot that are very very accessible very easy to take part in and you're right I think even after a few days I mean we were quite exhausted to be honest at the end of it not because we'd walked very far but because after a few nights of sleeping in quite basic accommodation and you know, and not really being able to have a wash or anything, you know, you, maybe that is, it gives you that experience of pilgrimage, you know, feeling like, cracky, I really want a shower now. And you know, <laughs> It was a soft pilgrimage in many ways and being able to get a good meal in a pub with a beer at the end of the night, you know, is not something you're going to experience in the wilds of Spain. So, yeah, it would be a lovely starting point, I think, and a really lovely way to see a part of the country that's probably not, apart from the big places, Rodmill, which is where Virginia Woolf lived and died, and some of the towns, but it's not a place which sees many international tourists, I don't think. I don't get the impression. So it's, you know, a part of the landscape that's probably a little bit more undiscovered and a really unique way of seeing it as i'm sure pilgrimage are in all, all countries really they're always unique ways of seeing a place i have one other question for you and it's not so much about the old way as it is about a bigger picture issue you're an ecologist as you said and you are a pilgrim you've gone on different pilgrimage walks how do those two things fit together for you being an ecologist and a pilgrim you know i do have a christian faith i'd gone on a religious pilgrimage but I think for me, yeah, it's a deep, profound love of nature and uh, worship. And I don't know, I'm using very religious words, but magnifying nature. And so I think that you walk in nature, you become part of a landscape in a far more profound way than if you drive somewhere and just view it you suddenly are part of that landscape in a different way. And maybe that act of simplicity in pilgrimage and maybe not sleeping very well and not totally sure where your night's accommodation is or where the meal is going to come from, then it puts you on a more equal playing field, I think, with the landscape and nature and the people that would have been far more connected with nature in the past and 
and walked those routes in the past and, and lived much closer to the land than we do now. And I think all of that comes up when you do a pilgrimage. So, yeah, wildlife is my profession, but it's much more than that. That You know, it's my soul, you know. And so, yeah, yeah I, even if I didn't have a religious belief, I'd still be practicing my religion, I think, in walking in that landscape. Thank you very much, Carol. Do you have plans to follow another route on the British Pilgrimage Trust at some point? I'd the... love to. Do you know, I was thinking about it today for different reasons. I'd quite like to do um, the St Peter's Way, which goes across my old country of Essex, where I don't know very well, and it ends up at a chapel called St Beautiful, simple, ancient chapel called St Peter's on the Wall at Bradwell-on-Sea. And so I think for personal reasons, I'd quite like to do that at some point. Well, I, I hope to follow some of these trails in the not too distant future, because it sounds like a wonderful thing that everyone there has put together. Thanks for talking with me about the old way. Okay, thank you very much. All right, folks, here's what you're going to do. Open up your browser of choice. Go to britishpilgrimage.org slash roots. Scroll down. Behold the majesty. There are so many roots on that map, spanning the United Kingdom like veins pumping blood through the body. The old way shows up in purple along the southern coast of England. But that's just a starting point. Want to see deep southwest Cornwall? There's a route for that. Want to traverse the entirety of Wales? They can keep you busy for months. Scotland? No problem. They can even take you far north to the island of Orkney. And for those coming from abroad, remember that the UK isn't part of the Schengen visa area. So if you max out your 90 days in the EU, you can just keep on walking across the channel. No problem. So many routes, so little time. But at least when we can't walk, we can read. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Gail Simmons. She can be found at travelscribe.org. Her book, Between the Chalk and the Sea, is still a little tricky to get in the U.S., but if all else fails, you can order through Blackwell. Thanks as well to Carol Donaldson. You can find her at caroldonaldsonwriter.co.uk, and she writes for The Guardian online. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back again next week.